0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to the March 6th, 2020 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's get a quick take on the passing of Steve Farber, co-founder of the Brownstein-Hyatt-Farber and Shrek law firm and a power player in Denver politics for decades. Patty Calhoun from uh, Westward, also a power player in Denver politics for decades. Uh, What did you think of the legacy that uh, Steve Farber will leave behind, uh, who has been a player in Denver politics even longer than Colorado Inside Out has?
1: much longer than Colorado Inside Out has. He and Norm Brownstein and Jack Hyatt founded that law firm more than 50 years ago. It early on earned a reputation as they were the fixers and they could certainly fix things. And around this table, we used to talk about them a lot, especially when Peter Boyles was here and talking about the fixers. And so from the archives of Colorado Inside Out, I remember the day that Brownstein-Hyatt wanted to buy all the past episodes of Colorado Inside Out so they could see how we'd vilified them And uh, I think we provided the station's funding for the entire year with what was charged for that. But later, Barry Fay brokered a lunch between Peter, myself, and Norm and Steve, who I'm not sure we'd ever even met, or they would have turned on their heels at the time, at the Rattlesnake, and it was a really interesting conversation that gave everyone a slight appreciation for everything else they were doing. There is no denying that Steve Farber did such good works in this city. We would not have had the Democratic National Convention here in 2008 without all of his work, and then his life's work at the end, the American Transplant Foundation he has set up, has done incredibly great work.
0: David Copel from the Independence (coughs) Institute and DU Law School, Uh, Patty touched on a a couple different parts of the Steve Farber legacy. What are the things that stick out to you over his long uh, time being a player in Denver?
2: Well, he's not the first lawyer lobbyist in Colorado or American history, but he he certainly moved it up to a much higher professional and institutional level. I'll say my own career and my parents' careers never intersected with him that much. My dad was an Democratic state legislator for 22 years, had lunch with Steve Farber once, and that was the only time. My, my dad was, a, was well known as, as a pretty independent guy, and so not that useful for a, a business-oriented lobbyist to spend time with.
0: Eric Sonnen, political analyst, a weekly columnist at Colorado Politics. Uh, have the days of somebody uh, as powerful as Steve Farber, the fixer that you can kind of go to uh, in a town like Denver, have those days passed us by, or is it just harder to find them?
3: I think it's hard to find them, but no, they're still out there, and they're you know at a a range of law firms. I don't think they're concentrated in one firm like maybe for a decade or a couple decades they were at Brownstein Hyatt. There are two words that have been used so much in the last couple of days since Steve's passing uh, in reference to him. One was the power broker fixer image, and the other is as a mensch, and you usually don't find... Those two characteristics in one person. Yet Steve Farber exemplified both of them, and he was able to wear both of those hats and wear them comfortably and effectively. And he'll be missed. Marie Aberger, back, joining us the panel. Uh, founder
0: of Be Clear. Uh, Steve Farber, one of the main uh, energetic uh, people behind getting the DNC to Denver in two thousand eight. That was probably a uh, big time your uh, political uh, era. You think back to the kind of influence of somebody like Steve Farber. What are some of the thoughts that come to you?
4: Yeah, I think I'm one of the only ones around the table who probably didn't know him personally, but it's just been a really interesting and great week to hear stories of people like Patty and Eric tell these stories, share the difference you made in a city I love, and I really am proud to call home, and I think it's a good reminder to people in power the way you can uh, use your influence for good and, and charity, and so hopefully the stories will inspire more people.
0: Super Tuesday caused a major winnowing of the Democratic presidential field this week. After Joe Biden scored a major victory in South Carolina on Saturday, the dominoes began to fall. Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar dropped out before Tuesday, and Michael Bloomberg joined them on Wednesday, all of them endorsing Biden. Elizabeth Warren dropped out on Thursday but has not announced an endorsement. Here in Colorado, Bernie Sanders won the majority of delegates, but Colorado was only one of four of the 13 contests that he won. Uh, Patty, Colorado, when it comes to primaries, uh, is not fond of picking winners. Uh, Jerry Brown is uh, among uh, our pick, uh, winners in the past. Uh, are we going to continue this trend? Do we just give Bernie Sanders a kiss of death here?
1: Well, when Bernie runs four years from now, we'll probably still vote for him. He, we did in, 19, <laughs> in 2016. What we're going to discover this year, I think, is it's not just who we're voting for for president, but how we're voting. And in Colorado, we got a lesson in how various changes in our voting procedures have affected each other. So we have the mail-in ballot, which I think is great for voter accessibility, that anyone who was in a major party or unaffiliated got ballots in the mail that they could return. If they returned them too early, they might have voted for someone, Oh, it's, it's very possible they did vote for someone who, their, that, who was out by then, their vote wasn't counted. So we're going to see another push for ranked voting, maybe. Um, we also have the unaffiliated people who are able to vote this time, and 600,000 did. Most of them voted in the Democratic Party a primary we don't know for whom but that changed things too so we're gonna see and then we also have when we're going into the convention will the faithless electorate issue come up will those US Supreme Court decision affect who's gonna wind up being the nominee so we've a lot of issues still to work out that kind of cancel each other out
0: uh, David there was a, a column put out by a key strategist in the Jeb Bush campaign back in 2016 11 days before Super Tuesday and it said if anyone in the Democratic establishment wants to stop Bernie Sanders, you have to do it now. You have 11 days. Um, it, it went over about how, you know, people have been coalesced on the moderate side of things. Uh, someone uh, from the establishment actually endorsed him, things like that. That and a South Carolina win seem to all come into place. Uh, but you still have a two-person race at this point. Where do you see the edge?
2: Well, it, it, exactly as you said, and, and the Democratic Party, I think, listened, and maybe that helped spur him to act. Uh, you... And they saw what happened when the Republican Party didn't do that with the, the Trump challenge in, in 2016. Part of the difference was Biden was somebody they could coalesce around, whereas Ted Cruz is the alternative to Trump. Everybody hated him anyway. And, and so uh, within the party establishment. Uh, so he wasn't a, a unifier the way Biden is. Was, and his the Biden comeback is... Maybe the greatest in presidential nominating history, eclipsing McCain 2008, Mondale 1984, and let's not forget James K. Polk in 1844. Who can Uh, I want to thank Tom Steyer and Michael Bloomberg for showing the world that money can't buy elections. Um, Bernie, for all his complaining about how the party is ganging up, up on him, which is certainly true, well, if he lived in one of those countries he's been praising and saying is so much better than the United States, when you mess with the inner party there, you and your bros end up in a gulag. Uh, so you're, you really are better off in America, Senator. Um, and I've got a uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren. She looked at the Bloomberg campaign and said, "Kill it," and. Thank you, Senator, for your service <laughs> uh, Eric. Uh, was this the
3: craziest seventy two hours of at least presidential primary politics that you 've ever seen Yes, it probably was i 'm trying to flash back, and David mentioned McCain in New Hampshire in uh, twenty eight but uh, there was not there was no Bernie Sanders in that race. It was sort of a blob of other possible candidates, and McCain stepped to the fore. No, this was a complete reversal. Over the course of 72 hours, actually less than that, it was from the close of ballots late on Saturday in South Carolina to the opening of voting very early Tuesday morning. And it was done without a lot of the accoutrements of modern politics. Uh, The guy didn't even step foot in a lot of these states. He stepped foot in Colorado, but didn't hold a Biden, but but didn't hold a rally. Went to a big fundraiser at Ken Salazar's house. Didn't step foot in Minnesota, one Minnesota. Didn't step foot in Massachusetts, won Massachusetts. Um, I could go on. So sometimes these things take a li- take on a life of their own, and they're really outside of the realm of a lot of the tactics uh, that political operatives are always talking about uh, and employing. The burden is now on Joe Biden. I mean, the the the. the 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 bright lights are on him. He is the front runner now. He has a opportunity this coming Tuesday to deliver. I don't know if it's the death blow, but it's certainly a decisive blow in Michigan if he can beat Sanders in Michigan. Sanders did win Michigan against Hillary uh, in 2016. Um, There's a debate coming up, uh, not this weekend, but the following weekend, and you know it's going to be this macho, macho, man-on-man debate between two very elderly gentlemen in Sanders and Biden. And Biden cannot afford a real senior moment in that debate. And that's, uh, you know, that's been his pitfall. But I think there's a bandwagon running here. And I think it is clearly Biden's to lose at this point.
0: Marie, it's a one-on-one battle for the sole Democratic Party. Uh, They couldn't have written it any better. Uh, Who has the edge? What happens?
4: I have to say, I you know dearly love Joe Biden. He was my first boss, uh, has had a huge impact on my life. I think it's really impressive what Bernie Sanders has done for the party and moving us to a more progressive party. But the fact that the soul of the party has come down to a one-on-one show-off between two men in their 70s when we started with one of the most diverse fields in history is pretty upsetting to me. I'm having, having a pretty hard time with that. I would have liked to see more voices be up on that stage. Um, but that said, now we'll get to hear from both of them, uh, do what it takes to beat Trump. Um, and I loved seeing the turnout here in Colorado. Um, I think the switch here was a really great move. I uh, wish it also included our Senate primary. Most people don't even know there's a caucus for the Senate tomorrow. Uh, the kind of turnout numbers we saw in this presidential race, I wish we could see in our Senate race. It's a hugely important race. Uh, so I would love to see turnout continue for all the races we have here in Colorado.
0: It's a great point about the Democratic caucus. There's still a caucus tomorrow, but Saturday. And uh, the, the way it's going right now, 12 people are going to decide what, what, what moves forward to the state convention later. Uh, it's a good point. The coalition that was considering running an anti-Tabor ballot initiative has decided to go in a different direction. Vision 2020, led by the Bell Policy Institute, announced a ballot measure to implement a graduated income tax in Colorado. The proposal would lower the tax rate for households making under $250,000 a year, while raising the tax rate for households making above that mark. David, while being terrible news for CIO fans, because clearly they're going to be in that latter group, uh, what, uh, what do you see with an, a, a graduated income tax ballot issue, which is, let's just face it, even for wonky folks like ourselves, a little hard to make sexy? What do you think of the idea?
2: Okay, well, so the, the tax consumer lobby has apparently done more polling and find the same results we've had for the last three decades in Colorado, which is Coloradans really like their taxpayers' bill of rights and don't want to repeal it. So they're doing something that's within the scope of how the taxpayers' Bill of Rights operates, which is ask first. And so they're going to the voters to ask for a a tax increase of $2 billion. And as Tabor requires, that's got to be, it will say, shall taxes be raised by $2 billion? They are hoping that they can get enough votes to pass this constitutional amendment. It's 55%. with uh, by going to low-information voters and thinking they're going to get some kind of tax cut. If you're a family that makes $80,000, their tax cut would be about $25. And then on the other side of that, it's a huge and punitive California-style tax increase on successful entrepreneurs. It is a good approach to end the problem of economic and population growth in Colorado because you will drive the people who are founding the businesses, making money, growing, hiring more employees. They can go to Cheyenne and Laramie where there's no state income tax.
0: Uh, Eric, the graduated income tax, and and I think uh, David makes a a, a fair point about it being basically, hey, we can solve all our problems if we just get the money out of rich people. Rich people aren't rich just because they just got lucky. Well, some did, but some of them also know how to figure out what to do with their money, so it's not as if if there's not a
3: way to work around things like this. Uh, can, Can this play in Colorado? It might. I think it's born somewhat out of desperation, this is a lobby that has tried so hard for so many years to raise taxes for education, first and foremost, but for we saw a transportation measure. They have all go down, gone down to flaming defeat. They have not even been close late, late election night kinds of uh, uh, shows. So they're trying to skin the cat a different way here the lead, I think David is correct, the lead is a $2 billion increase, but they're trying to bury the lead around the idea of a graduated income tax. So you're not paying it for the majority of Coloradans, some other wealthy guys paying it. The graduated income tax, which is obviously what we have on a federal level you know certainly has merits uh people and uh, particularly in this era of wealth disparity and growing wealth disparity you can make the case that people of means and people who have done well ought to pay more i think what the democratic party play is the fire that they're playing with here and on a national level is the notion that it's never enough that you can uh, that uh, The tax scheme is endlessly elastic, uh, particularly at higher income brackets. Uh, Coloradans are very used to this flat tax that we've had, 4.63%. It's been the norm here as long as I've been around, which is too many years at this point. And uh, I think it is going to be a tough sell, not an impossible sell, but a tough sell to get people to dispatch with what they are familiar with.
0: Maria, I applaud Vision 2020 for seeing that uh, tackling Tabor as a whole uh, was probably at least a fool's errand or at the very least a way to get out the other side's base really well. So getting something a little more focused is a good idea. Is this the right call?
4: I think it's really smart. And I actually think you can put a pretty sexy headline to this. I got to disagree, like saying the wealthy should pay their fair share. That's a pretty easy, straightforward message to go out and take to Coloradans. I think there's actually gonna be some broad support for this. If you look at the Warren wealth tax, uh, there was broad support, not just among Democrats, but even a majority of Republicans when that was pulled. So I think we could see some broad support for this idea of you should have to pay your fair share. Um, and I also think in a, you know, a time when what we're discussing is McConnell and Gardner supporting tax cuts for the rich, President Trump last night saying he'd be open to cutting entitlements to open up this discussion of, like, Colorado, where do you land on this? Tax cuts for the rich or the rich should pay more? I think that's a, a pretty good conversation to be having.
0: Patty, you have come up with a variety of sexy headlines in your day. Uh, can you make one up for, and not on the spot here, but do you see one in the future for the graduated income tax?
1: Oh, sure. Something like bitch, bitch, rich or something. But... Um... <laughs> I have to say what what Eric is forgetting is that so many of the people in Colorado now have not been here long enough to get used to the flat tax rate and It is appealing to say, make someone else pay for our troubles, especially if we know where the money is going to go, if the money is really going to go to roads, if the money is really going to go to education. So depending on how how both campaigns are set up, and clearly there's going to be plenty of money on both sides, depending on how honest they are and how educational they are, this could pass, unlike the other uh, evasions of Tabor in the past.
0: Denver Council Member Kandi retweeted with laughing face emojis and #Yaz uh, hashtag solidarity, another person's tweet, saying that if they contracted the coronavirus, they would go to every MAGA rally possible. The Colorado Republican Party is calling on Sadebaka to resign from office, calling the retweet an evil statement. Sadebaka claims that she was using sarcasm to call out President Trump's downplaying the virus as a Democratic Party hoax. Uh, Eric, the most uh, entertaining part of this for me was the clutching of pearls by the the Republican Party in Colorado. Like, oh, this was an offensive tweet. Now, yes, you can make a claim. This was an offensive tweet. Absolutely. But this is 2020. We've, uh, let's say, gone through a variety of elected leaders posting or retweeting an offensive tweet. Uh,
3: What were your uh, thoughts seeing this all go down this week? Oh, a few quick thoughts. First of all, you're right. I mean, the, the Republican Party is not exactly who Candace Cedabac is going to listen to, who she's going to take her cues from. And I think Marie, after I'm done, may have something to say about Republican behavior via, vis-a-vis Twitter or other mediums on this issue of uh, exposing people to disease. All that said, this was a disgusting tweet. It is. Too much in character for Candy Sitaabaca these days, we keep waiting for her to grow up. We keep waiting for her to become more the responsible elected official no she doesn 't have to become boring she doesn 't have to become part of the good old boys club. No one is expecting that Candy will always be who candy is, but sometimes you need to let the temptation go. Uh, sarcasm implies humor i don 't think anyone who read that tweet or candy Siabaca 's retweet found any humor in it, uh, and the, the notion that this was somehow sarcasm was just a bit of you-know-what covering uh, once, uh, once she got busted. Candy is first and foremost a provocateur. I think that is her role in life, is to be a provocateur. It's not to be a lawmaker, a legislator, a city council person. It's to stick your finger in the eye of the establishment on a daily basis at every opportunity. She is pretty good at that. The question is, does she want to make that her long-term career, or at some point does she want to pivot and transition to doing something else in, in, in the political world?
0: I think the the political norms of pre-2016 would say absolutely. But I think there's a lot of people right now that are reading that as a strategy to the future. And there's, there's a lot of great examples that say there's, that's a quicker path. Uh, Marie, what is uh, your reaction to uh, both uh, the retweet and then the reaction to the retweet?
4: It was a bad tweet. Like, there's no denying that. It was a really bad tweet. But when we're facing a global pandemic, a tweet by a Denver councilwoman is just really not that big of a worry on my list of worries. Um, so, I guess I'm a little more worried by how much attention we're paying to it um, at a time when we have again a global pandemic being handled by a president who, speaking of tweets, in 2014 told then President Obama, you know, he should go get exposed to Ebola. So, leadership from the top doesn't look very good. But also, this is a president who's saying, you know, the Death rate is a a fake number. The whole thing's a media hoax. He's telling people if you're sick, you can go to work. Uh, When I worked for President Obama, we had to so carefully think about every word we put out during something like this to make sure people are getting consistent, clear message, not panicking, taking the right precautions. We don't have a leader who's doing that, so I'm not that worried about a bad tweet. I'm really worried about a president who's not ready to handle this.
0: Patty, when I saw this go down, it just made me more convinced that uh, Councilwoman Seda has a copy of Art of the Deal on her nightstand. I could be wrong. What do you think?
1: Well, as tweets go, she was nowhere near where Trump's been with a lot of his tweets. But I want to go to the Colorado Republican Party, which is headed by Ken Buck. His tweet today basically is challenging. He has a video tweet up basically challenging Biden and Beto to come get the gun out of his office. And it's almost a quasi-threat. Now, we know that Ken Buck isn't loaded, his gun isn't loaded. In fact, he's called it the equivalent of a chastity belt wearing eunuch. But even so, he does not need to put up this tweet. I think when people are elected to public office, as they take their oath, they should turn in their smartphones and any other, doc, any other things they can use to tweet because this has not helped civil civil discourse.
0: Dave, it seems to me in populism politics, if someone you like says something that may be offensive, you can rile up the, your side saying, well, I, I back my person, which rouses up the opposite side saying, that person's terrible. It doesn't matter what side of the coin it's on. It just, it's just a matter of populism politics. I could be being cynical. How did you look at the situation this week?
2: Well, I'm not sure I'd, I'd tar all populist with that, but the, the broader point is, is definitely true. Uh, Candy C. DeBaca is the Donald Trump of Colorado. Uh, she, this tweet and her style in general is hateful and childish, and then when she's criticized, she lies about it and piles on more lies, about what she said to begin with, and then piles on more lies. So her supposed excuse for the sarcasm of encouraging people to spread a pandemic is that she was making fun of Trump saying the coronavirus was a hoax, except that itself is a hoax and a lie. I read the transcript of what he said in South Carolina. And what he said was the hoax was that Democrats were saying that his administration's response to the coronavirus was not as great as he thinks the administration's response was. But he never called the virus itself a hoax. The the Washington Post found this so bad that they criticized not only her but some of the Colorado media that had accepted her bogus framing of the issue. Charles Schumer uh, gave a speech on the steps of the Supreme Court personally threatening by names Justices Kavanaugh and Gorsuch and after he got criticized for that he finally several days later backed down and said I I shouldn't shouldn't have used those words. She ought to grow up to his level. It is time for a very, very
0: part of the show, uh, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Ms. Calhoun, please start us off.
1: Well, even as we're filming this, there's a rally over at the Capitol to talk about giving the Film Commission a little more money to make new films, uh, encourage filmmaking to come back to Colorado so that we are not facing embarrassments like the Liam Neeson movie, Cold Pursuit. They could have made that bad movie in Colorado and at least given us some money as well as the humiliation.
2: David. (laughs) RTD talking about cutting its service for the, the Broncos games, the Rockies games, the CU football games. That's one actual service that a lot of people really use and something where buses make sense because it's all on a fixed route to a particular destination. Um, I'm, it, it, it's shocking that they're cutting off one of the few things they do that, that actually works well.
3: Eric? I don't usually do this, but I'm going to go to the same place two weeks in a row, Colorado's Precinct Caucuses. What a secret Tomorrow in the aftermath, five days after or four days after Super Tuesday, which was a major event with major participation in Colorado, even Republicans came out for Super Tuesday when there was nothing at stake on their ballot. And yet we're going with this system. And I predict record low participation tomorrow. Marie,
4: a really rough start to Women's History Month. Uh, The week kicked off with no leading women in the presidential race anymore. The Supreme Court hearing arguments to take away our right to choose and here in Colorado, signatures moving forward to also restrict our right to choose. So not how I wanted to kick off Women's History Month.
0: Time to see something nice.
1: Patty.
4: But on the good side for Women's
1: History Month, Sunday is
4: International Women's
1: Day. This is also the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage in the United States. Now, Colorado actually gave women the right to vote 27 years earlier and was the first state to do so. So there's a lot to celebrate in Colorado this week, programs at the Molly Brown House, at History Colorado, and at the Women's Center for History at the Byers Evans the Mansion. So all great things to go out and see.
0: And we'd be remiss if we didn't remind folks that you, in fact, are getting celebrated later uh, next week as a Hall of Fame member with Visit Denver. Yes. Well, congratulations. It's a, a
2: well-deserved honor.
1: We'll da- see. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs>
2: <laughs> David. For those who are concerned that the next Democratic debate will have all the excitement of the Konstantin Chernenko versus uh, Leonid Brezhnev uh, d- debates in the, in the, uh, the uh, Politburo in, in the Soviet Union in 1979, the Democratic National Committee took away from the voters one of the choices they could have had because Tulsi Gabbard, who actually, believe it or not, is not even old enough to be on Social Security yet, uh, and who qualified for the next televised debate, according to the rules set by the Democratic National Committee. As soon as she qualified, they changed the rules to kick her out. So no, no woman, no, no one under 70, uh, no first Hindu uh, major party candidate for president. And I think there were a lot of voters, if they got to see her uh, versus the, the two uh, senior gentlemen, might say she's worth a serious look.
3: Eric? Eric? I did not have Konstantin Chernenko on my uh, CIO bingo today. Sorry about that. Uh, Three Democratic, serious, major Democratic presidential candidates exited the field since we last taped this show. I think they all made the race better. Uh, I'm talking about Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, and Elizabeth Warren. There can only be one winner in this process, but uh, hats off to the three of them. Marie.
4: Also, I just want to say hats off, not only to those candidates, but to their staffers. There was a lot of young people working in Colorado, knocking on doors in rain and snow. They worked their butts off on these campaigns. And so shout out to them for working so hard.
0: There we are. That is all time for this episode of Colorado Inside Out. For everybody here at, channel, at PBS 12, we're, we're learning that rebranding. So go to pbs12.org and you can check out all the new things we're offering. But for everybody here at PBS 12, I'm Dominic Dazuti. Thank you so much for watching. Good night. Oh,